0: you would open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 11. And our passage today is really going to be verses 1 through 9 of chapter 11, though we will address uh, chapter 10 as well. But I want to read for us today 11 verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth Let's pray. Father, we have Your Word open before us to a passage that is familiar to many of us and very familiar to many of us. Thank You that You've given us Your Word, and may the familiarity of this passage this morning not cause us to overlook it, not cause us to think that we have already wrung everything out of it we can, but instead may we come to it with fresh eyes this morning. And may you minister to our hearts even in these next few minutes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this chapter, as I said, is very familiar to us. It's one that uh, gets told in Sunday school class a lot. It's a fascinating one. I remember it from early on in my own uh, Christian life and even before Christian life, hearing about the Tower of Babel, and, and uh, so it's very uh, familiar to us. And of course, it's, uh, it, it's about languages. It, it ends up with a discussion about languages, and I personally think languages are, are very interesting. Um, I didn't always think that. I took four years of French in high school. I don't speak French. I learned about ten words. I got A's all four years, but I never learned French because I just didn't care. And then I became a Christian my senior year of high school, and suddenly languages became important because we want to take the word of God to people who speak other languages. And oh rats, I wish I had studied French. (laughs) But I didn't. I moved on and learned other languages and whatnot. But, uh, but I love languages, but they can be very confusing. And uh, when you travel internationally, that's one of the things you have to get used to when you're going through a foreign airport, is you have to learn to watch the colors and the symbols and worry less about the words themselves. At least that's uh, what I have learned. And, and, uh, but language can be very confusing. And we live in a world with lots of languages. And in our day and age, you know, we have communication in, uh, uh, we have computers and we have phones where you can type in one language or you can even speak in one language and it'll translate it immediately to another. Well, that's fascinating. And, uh, but language is a very interesting thing, but it's also uh, a little bit frightening. If you've ever been in a context where you've been in need in a foreign culture and you needed help right now and you, you didn't have the language of that culture, you know the panic that can set in. And that's when the, the, the signals and the hand, you know, you're trying to gesture to, uh, to communicate yourself. So it, it can be a little bit terrifying if you don't have languages. Well, our passage today takes us back to a time uh, before this language confusion existed. Uh, and it tells us really about how it came about, why it came about, and things like that. And so it's, uh, it's an interesting passage for that, but it's also going to be very important for other reasons as well. Now, before we get to chapter 11, you'll notice that I entirely skipped chapter 10. I noticed, and you noticed, right? But um, really, I just didn't want to read all those words, uh, the foreign names that I couldn't pronounce all the way through. No, that's, that's not really true. Uh, but we do want to talk about chapter 10 uh, for a moment. It kind of sets the groundwork for uh, what's going on in our passage here in chapter 11. Uh, chapter 10 is what's referred to sometimes as the table of nations. It's talking about the descendants of Noah and how they, they dispersed. Uh, they had numerous families all over the place, and the families grew, and there was, there was the line of Japheth, and, and these people came from Japheth, and that's what came about. And Then you have the line of Ham, and then including Canaan, which we talked about last time, and, and uh, then you've got also... Of the line of Shim, and so you've got these families, these about seventy nations that come about as a result of this time. This is tracking for us um, how one family, riding on one boat, could uh, turn into all the nations uh, of the earth. These seventy nations that are listed here in this passage. It's a description about the growth of mankind, and, and in there you have some, you know, the story of Nimrod, and you've got some other things like that, but basically it's describing for us where all these nations came from. Not exactly the nations we see today, but, but how mankind multiplied and became many, many nations, went from one family to many nations, and that brings us really to our passage today, which is, uh, which is focused more specifically on one uh, incident that's going to help us in, uh, in understanding really kind of a part of the course of the rest of the Bible. And so I've broken up this passage just into a couple of sections, verses 1 through 4, and then uh, 5 and following will be the next one. And uh, the first part here, as we focus in on this one account, we can kind of see a picture. It's actually a, a large picture, a man's arrogance. And uh, so we want to look at that for uh, just a little bit and see what man was up to, right? It starts off... Um, now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, right? So they, they, they could communicate with each other. There was a, though there are 70 nations, though there's this great spreading, now I don't think chapter 11 necessarily follows chronologically from exactly the end of chapter 10. It kind of fits in there uh, in some ways, but, but you've got this notion that everybody could speak the same language. They could communicate freely and easily with each other. And, um, you know, I was thinking about uh, this weekend was my 30th high school reunion. And so I got to see people I hadn't seen in literally 30 years. And uh, I, so we were reflecting back and looking at old yearbooks and the, the hairstyles and the people trying to grow facial hair and the, the whole thing. It was, it was very entertaining. But, but one of the things that was extremely different back in the 80s was the ability to communicate uh, immediately and internationally. You know, you could pick up your phone right now and you probably know somebody who's in a foreign country right now and you could call them up on FaceTime and, and we could have a conversation immediately and easily. We could communicate so clearly with everybody, right? And so uh, back in the 80s, that wasn't necessarily so. And of course, earlier that wasn't necessarily so. But here we live in a time where, where people can communicate freely with each other. What we're reading about here in chapter 11, people could talk to each other. There was, uh, there was one one language. They used the same words, and and as people migrated from the east or perhaps eastward, uh, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there, right? And so there's a great place to live. It's a big, wide open space, and so people kind of started congregating there. Well, that's uh, okay. So be it. But we get to verse 3, and we begin to see man's arrogance. First of all, he says, come, let us make bricks, right? So they have in mind a construction project. They They want to start building, and so they're going to be using uh, these bricks, and they're going to use uh, the bricks for stone, and they're going to build something, right? That's the beginnings of a plan. They've gotten together. they found a great place to live, and here's where we're going to build is basically what they're saying, and so they're going to make bricks, and then we see in uh, verse 4, they say, not only come let us make bricks, but come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. They've got grand designs. They've got big ideas for what they want to do. We've got, uh, found a great place to build. It's a good place to live, and it's a big, wide-open, flat space you can, you can build, and so let's do that. Let's get our construction materials together. Let's build a city, and in this city is going to be a tower, and the tower is most likely a, a type of tower called a ziggurat, which is Uh, which has four sides and stairways going up to the top. The idea is uh, that you can access heaven in some way. And it says here, uh, with its top in the heavens, that's not just saying how tall they want to build it. They're not just saying, well, we want it to be 100 stories or 150 stories or whatever might have been magnificent in their mind. The idea is to reach the heavens. I remember the First night, I flew into Chicago, and uh, was starting school, and and got picked up from the airport. And typical, you know, it was January, and January in Chicago tend to be, you know, a lot of cloud cover and snow and stuff. And so we're driving by the city, come from the airport, they pick me up, they're driving me by the city to Moody, and I see all these buildings, but because of the low cloud cover, uh, I couldn't see the tops of the buildings, but they reached up to the heavens, as it were. They were right into the clouds, and so. I asked the, the uh, uh, student who had picked me up from the airport, I said, so how high do those buildings go beyond the clouds? Well, he thought I meant, I, I, don't, I don't know what he thought I meant, but what he said was, well, it depends on how tall the building is and how low the clouds are. <laughs> wow, man, I'm glad I got that cleared up. Here all this time, I was confused about how that worked. What I wanted to know was, can I see a third of the building? Am I looking at half the building? How how high does this thing go? The Sears Tower and all these, right? But the idea is for this tower to reach to the heavens, not just be really tall so you can house a lot of people. The idea is to touch, to access the heavens. There's going to be a stairway to take you there. There's going to be a way to get there, an elevator, as it were, to give them access to the heavens. But what's fascinating many fascinating things about this, but the people had been told, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Scatter. And what we read happening here is they're gathering. They're doing exactly the opposite. They're ignoring what, what uh, Adam had been told back in 128, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and, and uh, had been repeated to Noah after the flood, the same exact thing. And instead, they set about congregating together. Right there. They're going to go together and join together. They're going to build this city and they're going to build this tower, and a tall tower that's going to give them access to the heavens, it's going to give them access to the place where God lives. They're going to do that themselves. They're going to find a way. They're going to build a way there. They, instead of accessing God by prayer, Instead of accessing God by faith, they're accessing God by building a stairway that will take them to Him. And so they say, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower. And then they say, and let us make a name for ourselves. Why are they building this thing? Well, there's a lot of motivation that's going on behind what they're doing here, but one of those things is that they want To do something that will be wonderful, recognized, remembered forever. They want to do it for their name's sake. Let us make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a city that people will talk about. Those people from that city, they are wonderful. They're brilliant. They're powerful. They're whatever. So they want to make a name for themselves. And then thirdly, you see, let us... Uh, lest we, So we're going to build this city, make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So their very goal for doing so is directly against what God had commanded them to do. He said, go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, go everywhere, scatter. And they say, we're going to build this tower so that we won't be scattered. Right? They want to do their thing. They want to Uh, accomplish their purposes and not God's purposes. and So uh, I've called this section Man's Arrogance. I really could have called this first section Warnings from Babel about the heart of man. Warning number one, beware man-made religion and attempts to tame God. You see, that's kind of what they're doing. By you know, building a way to get to God, as it were, by accessing the heavens, by, by making this tower that will take them to the place where God lives. They've got access to God. They've, they're, they're trying to, in their mind, they're trying to make a way that they can tame God. They can, they can access Him when they want. They can uh, take His blessings. They can benefit from, uh, from the heavenly realm on their terms. And that's man-made religion, isn't it? Rather than receiving instruction from God about about how to access Him, rather than uh, being obedient to Him, rather than hearing from His Word, rather than living life in in light of what He declares to be reality and submitting to that instead, what we have here is the building of a tower that's going to take people right into God's presence on their own terms. So beware man-made religion and attempts to tame God or gain our own access to heavenly blessings that really are only found in Him, that He gives freely, but He gives freely in His way. And so we need to be aware. And by the way, this is not the last uh, tower to reach the heavens that's been built. If you think about man-made religion, you think about uh, all different uh, ideas about how you can access God, how you perhaps are God, perhaps uh, how you can do this thing and that thing to arrange it so that, you can, uh, uh, so that God will be happy to do your will. Those, those, those are all towers of Babel. Those are all efforts to tame God and get Him to do what we want. And so beware of man-made religion. Instead, we're going to learn about God revealing Himself, about man uh, having to submit to reality as God declares that it is. So, beware man-made religion. Secondly, beware the deadly appeal of self-exaltation, the desire to na- make a name for yourself. They, they wanted to access God. They wanted to be all gathered together, lest they be dispersed. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted people to know them. And how tempting is that? How many ministries even this, we're not just talking, you know, a uh, famous athlete who, you know, buys into his own press or whatever, but, but even ministries that are, that are started off, you know, for the glory of God, pointing to him, and then the pastor becomes somebody or the, uh, this speaker becomes somebody, and now it's, it's, it's all about that speaker or that pastor's fame or name, and then people start coming to church to hear that guy, and then the ministry becomes about that guy, and he's really kind of making a name for himself. And after a while... You kind of have to think hard back to when the ministry was really about Christ because it's kind of now become about what the pastor can say or do or how influential he is or, or what he can accomplish or the latest book he wrote. So this isn't just about people long ago who were building a tower in Shinar. This is, this is a temptation that we have right where we are. So warnings from Babel. The corruption that uh, we saw back in chapter six had become so prevalent in uh, Genesis chapter six, which led up to the flood. That that sin was more explicitly sexual and political, and here we see sin taking a different form. It shows itself in man-made religious pursuits, coupled together with a man-centered self-determination. Man is the measure of all things. I am the master. Of my fate. Well, the question here is going to be what, what's God going to do about it? I mean, we've seen one fall back in Genesis chapter 3 and we saw what God did to that when He, when he banished the couple from the garden and we saw a second fall essentially uh, leading up to the time of Noah when the flood came and of course God judged that uh, in the flood and He saved this family through it. Well, this is kind of like a third fall. You've got humanity once again gathering together and agreeing to do this evil thing. What's going to happen? What is God going to do? How is He going to respond to the evils of this city and this tower? And that brings us to our second section here about God's opposition. God's opposition we see there in verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city. I call this the Lord's journey. And there's some irony here. Because they wanted to build a tower that was so magnificent it would go right to heaven so that they could get right into God's presence. Right? In their mind, this is, this is the, the, the largest and most glorious construction project that takes us right into the heavenly realm. It's going it's to brush up against the heavens. It's wonderful. It's magnificent, right? And, and God didn't, uh, you know, he, it gives the image here of God coming down to see it. You know, it's like, the, it's like the little boy. I may have a little boy like this who thinks he's um, just about as tall as his mom, right? And he's right about her belly button, right? But he's pretty sure he's as tall as mom, right? So from his perspective, he's almost there. He's almost there. Well, in reality, no right and from the perspective of the people building this tower like we're almost there the construction project's almost done like we just need the last couple of floors and and we'll walk right onto the to the to the, the 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 golden gates or the golden streets as it were right they think this is a big deal but the the image that's given here in this verse is the lord said i got to go all the way down there right? I have to stoop down and get down to, to like, bend that down on my knees to look and see. That's the, that's the image, not because God has bad eyesight, not because God is physically somewhere else. It's a, it's a depiction of all of the effort that they put into it, and what did it accomplish? A hill of beans that God comes down and kind of squints at, like, really? Is, is there some, something there? So, I call that the Lord's journey. Well, then we see In verse 6, the the Lord's assessment, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. So first of all, they're all one people. This is the Lord assessing what's going on in the situation. They're all joined together. They're all one people. All right. No comment yet. Just an observation. Secondly, they they all have the same language. They're able to communicate freely with one another. All right. No, no judgment, no assessment giving. He's just observing what's going on here. And he says, this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. We begin to hear the assessment. We begin to hear God's judgment, God's, God's determination about what's going on here. Yes, they're, they're one people. Okay, that's fine. They're, they're one language. Okay, no big deal. But they all have one will. Even that, you would think that's not a bad thing when he says there's nothing they won't be able to do. If they work together at first blush, it kind of sounds like, well, that's great. They're unified, and they can all pull the same direction and accomplish great things, right? Teamwork makes the dream work, after all, right? And so, why is it that these observations are actually negative? Why is this situation a concern in God's sight? Is God somehow being petty? or somehow being jealous about what man is capable of. God's just trying to hold man down. Is that what's going on? What's going on here? The problem is not that man can accomplish so much by working together, as if human accomplishment were somehow a bad thing. The problem is what man wants to accomplish. The problem is what man has decided to do the great creative ability and the concerted effort of a unified humanity. This is all marshaled. All at this point you're seeing a great display. And what's the purpose? To defy God's command to scatter and fill the earth, to gain access to heaven on their own terms, and to do so for the glory of man. It's what They seek to accomplish that's the problem. It's not the fact that they can accomplish much. These are the kinds of things that people want to do, and therein lies the problem. I was thinking this morning as we were listening to Steve and Jennifer talk about their ministry and talk about uh, all the things that are possible now with phones and apps and all kinds of stuff that's unimaginable. The ways ministry can can go out and the Word of God can get to places that doesn't have electricity. And it can get there on a smartphone because it got here and there and here and there and there. And, And somebody hiked up a mountain and here they've got the Word of God in their language with something they can see, something they can understand. It's amazing what has been accomplished. Technology is a powerful and a wonderful thing, but that's not all technology can do. Technology has also enslaved a giant portion of the earth's population to things like pornography, convincing people of things that are not true as if they were true. See, this technology, the the working together, it has great and fabulous and glorious and God-honoring application. And it can destroy lives and destroy worlds. And the problem here is not that, oh, they accomplished too much, their technology got too advanced or whatever. The problem was what they were doing with their technology, building their own kingdom against God's Word and for their own glory. And so that's the situation. What's what's the Lord's solution? Verse 7, come. I think that's ironically, by the way, that he says that. So, come, let us. That's what they said. Hey, we've got ideas. Let's go build bricks, and then we're going to build this tower, i we're going to build this city, and come let us do all these things right. And here it's worded this way. God says, okay, come, let us go down, and there confuse their language. So the Lord comes down, as it were. He stoops down right to their level. He's, he's got his purposes as well. They had theirs. He had his. And so he says, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. Right? Now, if I were putting together the plan for how to stop this you know, world domination by this culture in Shinar, I would not have first thought of, hey, let's change their language. Right? Let's mess with their dialect. Let's change their vocabulary and, and things like that. But that's what God exactly does. Right? It kind of maybe seems like an odd way to solve the problem. But remember what the problem is. Everyone is putting their sinful heads together to invent new and more creative ways to do evil to accomplish their own purposes. And so the solution the Lord gives is making it so those sinful people can't put their sinful heads together anymore to make their sinful plans. So by confusing their speech, by changing their languages, He makes it so there can't be this giant, global as it were, concerted effort to rebel against God. He makes it so that can't happen by changing the languages. And so that's the Lord's solution. We'll look at verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, which is what He had told them He wanted them to do anyway. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, scatter. I want you to go everywhere. I want, you, I want there to be people living in Nevada as well as California. And in Canada as well as Mexico. And I want people living all over the place. I want, I want people to be scattered. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over all the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. That, that thing that was the focal point, the center for their s- sinful focus, for their self aggrandizement, for their, their man uh, made, man centered religion that was going to give them access to God on their terms. He dispersed that, and he took it away. And so he hit the kill switch on it, and man was scattered, and they left off building that city. God's goal is accomplished, and man gets scattered far and wide, and man abandons his evil, man-glorifying, man-centered scheme. See, it's all about him, and God knows that is sinful that needs to be put to an end and then finally in verse 9 we have the lord's enemy is given a name here this place is called babel because it sounds like the word for confusion and you can imagine the confusion that would have that would have been around that day right and so it's called babel well later on it's closely connected in the old testament with babylon it's not just a trick of the English language that makes it sound similar. They are related to one another. It's in the same part of the world and accomplishing the same kinds of things. And so uh, you can see that later on in the Old Testament, Babylon becomes a very significant enemy of God's people. It ends up uh, warring against them. It ends up actually uh, destroying Judah and taking them into captivity to Babylon. So this is a representative. This is, a, this is God's enemy in the flesh, as it were, Babylon. It starts here in Babel. It goes to Babylon in the Old Testament where Judah ends up being in exile, and then all the way into the New Testament, all the way into Revelation, you have language about Babylon again popping up as the enemy of God's people, the representative, the, the, the physical representation of, of all of the evil forces against God. Right? So we have right here a theme developing about God's enemy and what, uh, what God's enemies look like, named Babel in this place. So, before we move on, I've got a couple of observations. At first blush, this judgment of God may look like pure judgment. Just God, you know, giving a a spanking, as it were. But there's grace in it. And you may have missed it. We often miss the grace that there is in God's punishment. God confusing the languages and separating the people from one another keeps them from accomplishing their goals, keeps them from accomplishing their evil goals. They had been pursuing evil. They had been going after something utterly destructive to themselves in the long term. Disobeying God, going directly against God's command, that's going to lead to destruction for them and their world. And God putting a stop to it feels like judgment. Judgment and it's also gracious he kept them from running headlong into the street he stopped them man is always trying to build his way to god's kingdom on his own on his own terms and it's a mercy when god defeats and confutes and confuses his efforts to do so so I think we see this perhaps as judgment, and it is, and it's protection. It's as if you and your son are out on the front, you know, you're mowing the lawn and your son's playing on the driveway or whatever, and he goes sprinting out after a ball into the street, right? And you yell at him. You do the, you know, you're not supposed to yell at people, right? And you yell at him at the top of your lungs, right? Well, that's scary. That's bad. Dad, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't yell at your son. You're trying to stop him from running headlong into traffic. You yell at your son if you have to, right? It's not just judgment. It's not being mean. It's actually gracious in the end. So that's the first observation that there is grace wrapped up in this. It's not only judgment. And by the way, we've seen that for the other two falls, haven't we? Even even when we saw the, the flood that was a judgment on all of mankind, yet there were eight that were saved. And the population of the world starts again, that God shows grace even in that moment. And we saw even back in the first fall, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve took of the fruit and the judgments were, were, were proclaimed, that there was, there was grace in those, that, that yet for the woman, child, childbearing would be very hard, yet she would bear children. And yet there would be struggle in the relationship between the husband and wife, yet there would be husbands and wives to struggle together. And though it's hard for the man to make a living and and the ground doesn't produce as it should, it produces thorns and thistles, yet he will get to eat bread. He'll just have to work hard to get there. So you see grace wrapped up even in those statements of judgment and that is true here as well. That's the first observation. The second observation, if you were at Babel on that day, you're part of the construction crew, I don't know, right? You're making cakes, right, Sue, for the workers so that they can enjoy uh, eating good cakes while they're building this thing, right? So if you're there at Babel, it would have been tough to make sense of what was happening, right? One day you go to work and you can talk to everybody. There's perfect coordination. You know, everything is happening perfectly. You can communicate perfectly with everybody. It's this huge, massive effort. It's, it's, it's accomplishing your goals, right? And the next day you go to work and you can't understand anybody, What's that guy talking about? Why, why can't I? The, the cake lady, she's, she talks weird now. And it's not just because she's from Oklahoma. Right? There's a confusion of the languages. Imagine how you'd have tried to figure that out. You would have been utterly confused, which is why they call it Babel. Consistent, right? It would have been utterly confusing. Only divine commentary... Only God's perspective can describe and tell for us what was really happening in that situation. You would have just been confused and not known what was going on, but the divine commentary of Scripture helps us to understand what was going on. We in our lives are not usually given a peek behind the veil, as it were. We live this life. We're right down here and we see the things that are going on. And I was talking with, uh, with Jennifer earlier about... The world, the changes, the political changes in the world and, and uh, sociological change, like just society is changing, economics changing, things are changing. The political, the realm, everything so much is changing, right? And we don't understand it, right? You, you think about it, you observe, people make comments, some people talk like they really, really know what's going on. I wonder, right? It's not until we hear divine commentary that we get a perfect picture of what was happening. You would not have understood what was happening at Babel. But now, since we have God's Word describing those things for us, describing what God was accomplishing, now we understand what God was doing. The problem is, for you and for me, we don't have God's divine commentary on 2022. We don't have God's commentary on what's, what God is doing in the world. We have guesses. Some guesses are better than others. Some are more biblical than others, but we don't really know. And in these times, when we don't understand, when when chaos is going on and we we can't read it, we can't figure it out, it's imperative for us to know who God really is so that we can trust Him when it looks by everything we see around us like He's not in control when we know who He really is, when we you know that we don't know what He's doing but that He is doing something and He hasn't lost control of the situation, we can have confidence in the midst of the storm. And so you may be going through a time in life, I've talked about politics and economics and all this, all this kind of stuff. There may be other things. It may be pers- maybe personally, you can't figure out the, the, the maelstrom that is your life. Why is this relationship doing what it's doing or or why am I seeing this in my life or why is my family undergoing this impossible struggle? I don't know. I can't answer that for you, but I do know who God is. And I know that if you are His child, He is working good for you. He is working good for you. He is conforming you to the image of Christ, even in that difficult thing. And Christian, that's what you ultimately want. So that's just an observation for our day. But the passage is not done. I mean, the passage is done. I'm going I'm to leave this passage and go to a new one, but uh, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 2, I'm not just jumping to a random place in the, in the Bible. I was doing a, a paper when I was in school and going through the book of Acts and working through it and and uh, so I was working on Acts chapter two, and as I was studying through this passage, I, I noticed a couple of fascinating things, themes from the Old Testament. So studying through the beginning of Acts chapter two took me to two key places. There are others, but took me to two key places in the Old Testament. One was the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The imagery, the smoke, the fire, the rumbling, the noise, the all that kind of stuff uh, is imagery that's used in Exodus chapter nineteen. And so it takes you there, but it also takes you back to our passage in Genesis chapter 11. By the way, it also takes you to Genesis chapter 10 as there's sort of a new table of nations given, all these nations that are represented. And so we go to Acts chapter 2 and we see the direction that this is going on the broad scale. This, this story in Genesis 11 is not done There are threads that that hang out there that God comes and grabs and brings back into the text in Acts chapter 2 and in other places, but we're going to look at Acts chapter 2. I'm just going to read for us uh, verses 1 through 13 and then then, uh, point out some commonalities here. Starting in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, In the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now there's a whole lot in this passage and I'm just going to touch on a couple of elements. You saw the themes from the passage we just read back in Genesis chapter 11. Whereas whereas one family in Genesis chapter 10 became a multitude of nations, and whereas in Genesis chapter 11 one language became a multitude of tongues, so the message of God's redemption in Christ goes from one people, the Jews, to all the nations. And it goes from one language to every language by the miraculous work of God. You have the gospel going forth. The languages are no longer barriers, not only because of technology, not only because of these other things, but here it's the work of the Holy Spirit that makes it so there is no barrier to the gospel. The people of God begin to speak with numerous tongues. And so that confusion that was caused at Babel, that, that, that time where one language was dispersed into numerous languages and it caused all this confusion and caused the spreading. Here you've got the gospel being given in one language, but then it goes to every language. And it goes from one people, and it spreads to all peoples. Unifying them, but not by drawing them together into the, the, the plain of Shinar, Not by gathering them into into one spot like that, but instead the gospel going far and wide to them and saving them where they are. So we read in Revelation chapter 5, singing of Jesus, By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So we have a picture that this confusion that's caused back in Genesis chapter 11 is not insurmountable to God. The Spirit of God will work in the people of God and the message of the saving work of God will go far and wide to all the world. He will overcome it. And so that thread of language back there comes back in in a powerful way, in a redemptive way in Acts chapter 2. I've got a couple of points of application for us here at, at the end. When you see what appear to be strong and tall towers that others seem to have that give them access to God when you see that there are religions in the world who have a visible earthly authority who can give direction i knew a man when i back in my road construction days he had grown up in a in a catholic home and and then he converted To become a Mormon at some time as a young man. And I, I wondered, what do those things have in common? Well, they have some things in common. One of them is each has a visible representative on earth who is the authority, who can look and say, thus says the Lord. They have a tower built. They have a way to access God. They've got a man they can go and talk to who will tell them what God says. When you look at people like that, when you look at those who appear to have this tall tower, they've got, they've got something figured out about God. They've got, they, they, you know, here we come to church and, and, a, and, a, and a sinful man stands up and imperfectly teaches God's perfect word and, and we're supposed to get direction out of this and we're supposed to be blessed by this and this is how God wants to lead His people. It sure seems weak. And there are a lot of people who, who abandon Protestant Christianity to go back to Catholicism because it's just easier having a leader, having that tower there who gives access to God, or perhaps they go to Eastern Orthodoxy for similar reasons, or they go somewhere else. They they want to have that guy they can look to and follow Him. And here we are opening the Bible, discussing it, reading it, and there's no one to say in your life, unless this says it, there's no one to say, thus says the Lord. God has spoken in His Word. And so when you, in that place where you're reliant upon faith, you're reliant upon prayer, you're reliant upon God's revelation as given in His Word, and that, in a difficult time, may seem like it's a very hard thing. Yet understand this. That tower does not reach to heaven. It may be built tall, and it may be very visible, and it may be very enticing. But the only way that we have access to God's presence is what's given here in His Word. Which brings us to a second point of application. Don't look for any other way, any other way of salvation other than the one that God provides. God is the one who's in charge of all things. He's the one who understands our sinfulness, and He's the one who understands the only way it can be remedied, and so He sent His Son, born as one of us. And yet, sinless, who walked in obedience to his Father always, accumulating perfect righteousness and obedience to God's law, and yet going to the cross to pay the penalty, not because he had a penalty to pay, but because I do. And he took it upon himself and he paid the penalty for my sins. And God put him to death. And then he was raised. And then He ascended to be with the Father again. And thus, my way to the Father is in Jesus, the only way, and the truth, and the life. Don't look anywhere else. Don't look for some other way uh, to be made right with God, some other way to have access to Him. Christ is the only way. And, and, it's, and it's a glorious mercy of God that He would even do that, that He would, that he would recognize our sinful condition and then provide the perfect remedy So that that my own sin and and, and the guilt that I have could be placed on on Jesus and, and paid for in full in Him. So that by faith in Christ, I have those sins forgiven and I have righteousness credited to me and I have access to God. What a gift. What a glorious gift. And it's offered to you. That by faith in Christ, you can have that peace with God. You don't need a tower. You don't need a ladder. You don't need... You don't need some accumulation of the things that you've done or or said or you need Christ. And by faith in him it is all accomplished. Because he has done it. Final point of application and I'll close. you might be going through something in your life where you're, you're breaking down. Where you're confused about what is going on. Maybe your life is falling apart. Your health is falling apart. Maybe you, you feel like you're losing your edge, like you're perhaps like you're losing your mind. Now, I, I don't know your circumstance. I can't speak into uh, your circumstance. But in looking at this passage in Genesis chapter 11, that falling apart and that destruction that that is the last thing in the world you want, yet it may be a severe mercy of God towards you where God interferes, where God confuses your efforts in order to keep you from some evil or perhaps in order just to give you something else that's glorious and more wonderful than you ever would have imagined. Maybe he's redirecting you to something new that you never thought of before and something that if your current course of action would, would just pan out, you'd never think of that thing when that thing is so much better. God may just be being merciful to you. Maybe God is sparing you a fate of accomplishing something evil or maybe He's giving you something more glorious and more wonderful than you ever could have imagined. Well, there are other things that we could observe from Genesis chapter 11. But we see God's gracious provision even of confusion at this time. That is Him being gracious so that mankind can't accomplish His great evil designs. His grace and His mercy are present in ways you never would have imagined. Even when you're going through difficulty. I would rather go through life having uh, the world by the tail, right? Anybody with me? And yet, few of us get to do that. And it's a mercy of God that we don't get to do that. God is graciously caring for His people. He is blessing them in ways that they don't understand. And he's accomplishing his good all the while. Let's pray. Father, this passage is a very familiar one to us. But it's not just a story about the origin of languages. It's not just a story about the scattering of civilizations. It's a story about man doing his best to build a name for himself, to protect himself, and to pave his own path to you or some version of you. But I praise you that this passage doesn't end there. I praise you that you step down and you make clear that man cannot accomplish that. That you actually stop them from their building project. You actually scatter them from their city so that they would spread far and wide. That they would that they would understand that they are not the masters of this domain, that though we are mighty creatures in some ways, yet we are fallen and weak and sinful. Father, I pray that we would live our lives in submission to You, that Your Word would be the guide for us, that we would seek to understand Your Word, to understand who You are, And how it is we can know you and and cling to you, cling to that truth of the gospel, cling to your word, even as the world goes crazy around us, even as we are very confused about so many things, may we not be confused about this. Jesus Christ is Lord, and he is my Savior, and I thank you for him. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family to come forward to uh, pray with you if you'd like to come up and pray with them. They love to do that. That's their ministry. If you if you finished your uh, blast zone, you can uh, meet with Miss Brianna over here and talk through that. I want to close with these words from 2 John. May grace, mercy, and peace be with us all from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. God bless you all. And you're dismissed.